welcome to the fifth episode of our podcast series in which hot topics, including new initiatives and alternative viewpoints on patient engagement within the life sciences sector will be covered. Although patient engagement is more and more common nowadays, it's absolutely crucial that it is also meaningful and sustainable. With this podcast series, we would like to contribute to achieving that goal. My name is Roger Lechtenberg and I'm a senior partner and co-owner of Edmedicum. And today I'm sitting here with Jamie Sanders, a well-known patient opinion leader and chronic illness warrior with a drive to remove stigmas from in particular mental illness and migraine disease. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you so much, Roger. So good to see you again and and have this conversation with you today. What we'd like to do today is is talk really about a a topic that's very close to your heart, and that is what you call medical gaslighting, right? But before we go into that topic, can I ask you to to just maybe elaborate a little bit about yourself, your personal journey, what were your catalysts or motivations that led you to become a a patient advocate, a patient activist? Why did you start uh, the Migraine Diva blog and all the subsequent activities that probably came after that? And maybe can you elaborate a little bit on that? So I've had migraine almost my entire life since the age of eight. So it's something that's always been a challenge for me to learn how to navigate life through all the different stages of migraine, the different stations of life. When I was in my mid-20s, that's when migraine really became um, a real strong force in my life. I became chronic. I was having daily headache on top of the several migraine attacks I would have each month, trying to raise young children and manage a household, um, maintain, you know, healthy relationships. You know, it was really overwhelming. And um, one thing that was a, a constant thread in my life with migraine is the stigma attached to it. Um, so, you know, as a as a, you know, a young girl, as an adolescent, as a preteen, you know, as a young adult, you know, that was always a common thread. People misunderstanding what migraine is, really being extremely dismissive, being, you know, the the unsolicited the amount of unsolicited medical advice <laughs> that patients with with headache disorders are given are it's insane. Um, and always having to just navigate that. And I just kind of really felt so isolated. Migraine itself mm-hmm. is a very isolating disease anyway. Um, but when you're constantly battling people's invalidation and dismissiveness, that makes you retreat inward even more because you just don't feel safe out there. And you also get exhausted from having to explain everything all the time or correct misinformation. Right. And most people, when they're battling an illness, they don't want to be an educator all the time. They're they're trying to figure out how to manage this illness. And, you know, that's enough. Isn't it? That is enough. <laughs> that's enough. That and the absurdity of working through, you know, insurance issues. You know, it's it's when you're a chronic illness patient, you are a professional patient. You're always dealing with the healthcare system constantly. And then so when you're confronted with people who just really don't understand what you're going through, question your methods or, you know, downplay how severe your symptoms are and how debilitating and disabling they are, um, you retreat inward even more. Um, And so what I noticed at a certain point, it was around 2011, I was really in the throes of just daily chronic pain and feeling very alone. I have great support around me, don't get me wrong, by my 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 husband, my my kids, my my family, friends, but when you don't have somebody close to you that 
understands and has been through and, and experiencing migraine or severe headache, it becomes challenging, you know, because you feel like you have to explain a lot of time. You just want somebody to get it, right? And I think yeah. that's just with any aspect of life, with just humanity, you just want somebody to kind of get it. You just want that validation and that, and that support um, and, just, and just to be heard. I really wasn't finding that around me. I have a background in writing. I love to write. It's one of my creative outlets. And I was familiar with blogging. And I said, well, let me look into this and see what this is. Because I wanted to be able to have a platform where I can mainly, it started off as like an online diary for myself. Sure, uh, sure. You know, write it off basically uh, away from you in a way. Right. Because it was just very overwhelming dealing with all of these emotions and just how challenging this is this, that it was and it continues to be. And I just needed an outlet. Mm -hmm. um, and so it served different purposes. One, mainly the initial purpose was just to have a place to be able to put this out there and just it's, it's cathartic, you know, to be able to release all of that. Um, but also in the process of doing that, it, you know, by telling my story, it validates others in that process. And sure. I understand how important that is because I was lacking that. And so I understood that there was power in my words by being able to be very transparent about what I was experiencing. Not only can it liberate myself, mm -hmm. but it can give other people that, you know, validation and that, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one going through this. Somebody yeah, they else can understands. Relate to it, right? And, right. It's all and, about relatability. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's all about basic human needs at the end of the day. And some of us require a little bit more because of the situations we're going through. And then when you're just dealing with something that's just not understood very well and has very harmful misconceptions attached to it, it makes asking for the need to be heard a little bit more challenging. And you tend to be a bit more hesitant, maybe have more anxiety around that. So I wanted to alleviate that also. For other people, they don't have to respond, but they can just get that satisfaction in knowing they're not the only ones out there. So it, it was able, you know, to provide um, a space for me to build community around myself with people who understand my journey. Maybe a little different, but we all kind of have that same, you know, a lot of commonalities amongst our different journeys that we can all relate to. And so basically that's what the Migraine Diva started out as. And I get asked a lot, why did I come up with that? particular name i love it the first time i saw it i love you know <laughs> the migraine diva i thought that's a person i would like to speak to <laughs> i know it's like i'm surprised people really like it because i'm like it, it could come across sounding a little vain it really has nothing to do with that it's just it's part of my identity and it's a way for me to cling to parts of myself that are not attached to migraine because so much of my life revolves around migraine and support for me to hold on to pieces of me that are authentic. And a piece of that is my love for makeup. I've always loved it since high school. Um, it's fun for me. I like to explore with different colors and experiment. And it's and it's a it's a therapy for me. It's like art therapy. Yeah. Um, it's a way for me to be creative. It's a way for me to channel what I'm feeling into um, a creative outlet. So whether it's you know, the pain and doing my makeup is painful. Like I, it hurts to do my face because of my migraine and my facial pain. It's like I'm torturing myself to do this. <laughs> yeah, but maybe it's also a way for yourself to, to accept 
the situation as well and 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 live with the situation uh, of having migraine having facial pain and 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 still be able to do that that is so important to you and exactly. having nice makeup and it's it's a shame that uh, the view that, that nobody can view the podcast and only people can listen to it so <laughs> <laughs> So that, that's where the name Migraine Diva came from. And how did it evolve after that? After the, you know, when you started doing it, people started to follow you, I guess. And how, how did this initiative, this blog, initi- uh, you know, evolve? I'm still very, like, in shock about the, the, the trajectory of, you know, my journey as a patient advocate. Because honestly, I wasn't trying to do anything spectacular or be... like a voice for everybody it was just really about I just need to talk about this and I think my my you know me being candid and so vulnerable and transparent really touched people I don't have a huge following I think I have less than 100 people that follow my blog okay (laughs) (laughs) but Um, maybe they are 99 persons you know people that are really having uh you know uh, a real support to to following your blog and Honestly, that's fantastic if that's the case, right? Right, right. And um, so a company happened to come across my blog. They were having a panel and looking for people living with migraine. And I came across my blog and reached out and wanted to fly me out to California to be on this this panel. And like, you know, since you're a patient advocate, and that's the first time I heard that term, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I didn't know that's what I was. It always shocks me that people really care about what I have to say. And that's just one of like my fatal flaws about myself. Because mm. I really don't think what I have to say is that important. Um, it's just a process for me to be able to deal and cope with my own journey. But it's it's very humbling to know that it is that impactful for some people. I never take that for granted. So it started with that one moment. And during that panel, there were, you know, people from other outlets there. And they're so intrigued by my story and wanted to interview me. And they kind of just started snowballing from then that was around 2016 so i started my blog in 2011 so like it took about five years of me doing it it wasn't instant you know um and again that wasn't a goal of mine it just happened to organically work out that way um but like once i started working in this role of an advocate things just you know just took off i wind up i wound up being you know, in places where I happen to be able to connect with really great people and organizations and form relationships and be able to do this on a bigger level. And it became more about being able to be that representative that I didn't have and really trying to be as authentic as possible and just really encouraging people to believe that they are not responsible for why they have this disease. And unfortunately, this part kind of goes into that medical gaslighting that we'll talk about a little bit later. We tend to gaslight ourselves that, oh, it's not that severe. It's not that bad. People have it worse. I'm not dying, you know, but still it's your, your body and your mind and everything about you is under such stress. It's not normal to be in that kind of pain and to deal with all the other symptoms attached to it and still are required to show up and people not giving you any empathy for what you're going through and expect you to do it anyway. It's important for me for people to understand how hard it is to have something like migraine um, and have society basically, not really shun you, but just basically 
it's not that serious. You know, I know somebody who just had to do this and they're cured and they're fine. Why can't you do that? You know, isn't it also not simply because uh, of the fact that it's not visible from the outside? Uh, let's be honest. And yes, at least, you know, sometimes it is visible maybe from the outside. If it's really too severe that you can that you are even, you know, having issues with, with having a normal normal in brackets face, uh, of course. But I think with a lot of diseases where on the outside everything looks normal, people tend to maybe sometimes, you know, have empathy for a while, but then after a while they forget about it or mm -hmm. they, they don't they don't remember it. It's maybe not even intentional. It's probably unintentional, actually. And that is maybe even worse if it's unintentional, because then, you know, nobody can actually do something about it unless, you know, people like you are speaking up and and telling, uh, you know, the world and educating the world and educating the people that this is a serious thing, what you're going through on a day-to-day -day basis, on a day-by-day -day basis. I think it's incredibly important that you're doing these kind of things. And of course, as at Medicam, we, we, we do patient engagement uh, through uh, for, for a lot of things, amongst other things also for, you know, uh, chronic uh, headaches and other painful disorders. And Every single time I'm speaking to persons like you living with such a disease, I every time think, you know, we, we should just do more. Not only at Medicum, but also the pharma companies and, and any other stakeholders involved, we should do more. And also the medical community should do more in getting this, this, this gap that is there getting it crossed in a way. And it's not so easy, but as, but it's very important that people like you are speaking up and, and, and speaking about these kind of things. So that is fantastic. And that's why we also speak today, right? So yeah, <laughs> that's, that's nice. So shall we go a little bit more into the, the, the medical gaslighting or you could also say stigmas, disparities that yeah link to that, unconscious bias uh, that that is around in the medical community and, and maybe also even in the pharma community, uh, could be. Curious what your thoughts are on that and, and, and you know, how that, is, is that changing? Is that is that still the same as, what is it, five, ten years ago? We definitely have made progress since I first, you know, started to dabble in the blogging and started becoming involved in online patient support groups and just kind of cultivating my voice there. There has been a lot of work done on combating stigma when it comes to migraine and headache disease, period. Um, so we have made progress. There's just the innovation alone since 2011 when I started. You know, I remember, you know, the gurglings of CGRP back then. So just, I knew about it and I was excited, like this stuff is happening. And having lived with migraine so long and just remembering when Imitrex was made available, you know, in like the late 80s, early 90s, you know, mm -hmm. and how huge that was. And we haven't had anything since then. So we definitely are making progress. We're moving forward. Is it enough? I don't think so. And I think some of that has to do with the lack of, one, there's a lack of patient health literacy in general when it comes to headache and migraine. Two, there is a lack of, um, provider education, even mm -hmm. in medical schools. It, I mean, it, it, it permeates all the different levels of interaction people have with the healthcare system. And people come into these professions that they're interested in um, 
working in the medical field, they come in with their own unconscious biases, right? Um, And their own preconceived notions of what something is um, or their own opinions about something. And we don't realize it, but that that forms how we how we approach certain things, um, how we handle them, how we may invest in that or divest from that. And when people come in with this, you know, really, you know, foundational stigma about migraine, it's kind of like a cookie cutter type of illness. That's just disaster from the start. So that's something I think the shift I'm finding now, the progress I'm seeing, that's what it is. It's progress. Nothing has been eradicated. Things are still issues, but we're finding that we're getting a bit more traction with people actually wanting to sit and listen and maybe pursue actually looking inward to see how maybe they show up and how they that may impact a patient's experience, whether it's positively or negatively. We're not Mm. always focusing on what doesn't work, but what does work. Um, And I find that, you know, we're having those conversations and it's not just with the patient advocacy organizations, but this is something that happens with the pharma companies. At least for me, if I'm involved in a role with any of these companies, I have a responsibility to make sure that they understand where the unmet unmet needs are, where I see the gaps, where I see there are some failings, where, you know, we can improve, um, but also be encouraging, you know. Um, And so that's kind of where my my role has evolved, where I'm, I'm, you know, it's more of like, you know, being a strategist and a consultant and really helping to guide programs, even like media um, to really mm. represent and really validate people. We always talk about um, the people that we know are diagnosed and have some level of access to healthcare. One of the things I've constantly have been talking about is we need to talk about those who are underserved, those who are not diagnosed, who are misdiagnosed, whose social determinants of health prevent them from being able to access the medical care mm-hmm. that they require. And if it's hard for people with insurance and transportation and safe housing and access to clean, healthy food to get to those services, imagine what it's like for people who just have no ability and have no awareness that those things exist, first of all, and have nobody trying to help them get access to that. That's a nightmare, um, I think. It is. It's a nightmare. Yeah. To, to put into perspective, it's a nightmare for me. Okay, I have really great insurance. We have supplemental insurance. I have a flexible spending account to help pay for my co-pays. I have transportation. I have clean housing, safe housing. I have electricity. I have fresh water. I have access to multiple food sources. I still have a hard time getting the needs that I have met. And that doesn't fall short on me. Um, And so I can't, in good conscience, go through this journey and not speak about those that don't have. Part of that is because of what I experienced growing up and what I was privy to see. You know, I got my health care from a community health care center because that's where my father worked in an executive Uh leadership role. And it was about community. Community healthcare is very different than commercial healthcare, very different. And I saw how important it was for it to be a community-based, patient-centered care. And that was from the 80s I saw that. 
So to yeah. me, that's the standard. I thought that's what it was for everybody until, yeah. you know, I left that environment and I had to pursue, you know, the commercial healthcare system like a lot of other people and deal with all, you know, the bureaucracy and the red tape and all these barriers in place. And it's not like that in those centers because it's about serving the people, giving mm. them the services they need because it's a human right. It's not a luxury, you know, um, no, and isn't. so... I take that that experience into what I'm doing. And so with that, I see progress because I'm really doing my best to make sure we're doing the hard work and we're looking in the places we're not thinking of um, and really trying to enlighten people about what you might not normally consider because you're not used to that. You've never been around it. It's not part of your your reality and your existence. So you, if you if you don't see it, you're not aware of it. You're not going to think of it out of mm-hmm. sight, out of mind. So my job is to be able to how can we push this out and really make it accessible to everybody? Because we struggle ourselves and we have access, you know. And those of us with access really have to do a lot of work to maintain that access. For people that don't have it at all, how can we bring those services to them? How can we make it easier for them? And through that is through health literacy for people in those vulnerable populations and providing provider education and really, you know, advocating in medical schools to really increase headache medicine, just that education up front, having patient advocates come in and talk to medical students. Like those are the things I think are really important. And I kind of see, at least for me, that's where it's moving for me. Okay. And I think that's where the important work is, is that grassroots work. I think that's more important than sure. what's the what's the what's the quick win? And I feel like a lot of times that's kind of the motivation. What's the quick win? How can we get as many people to feel better? And obviously that's a good goal. But you're still missing pockets if, of if people. If you don't put it in a foundation uh, that that can that can even yeah be expanded later on uh, to even be better, you know, right. it's only uh, putting a bandaid uh, on, on something and and then you tear it off again and you put it on again and you tear it off again and I, I don't think that is good at all. So I do agree very much with you that this should be done. What can pharma companies, for instance, do in this field? Of course, we are talking about a broader scope than simply, hey, we are developing a drug or whatever. But do you see a role for, you know, these kind of companies um, in in also supporting the things that you're just mentioning, you know, getting it better, getting a much better foundation there, basically, at several layers, at, at several places. What could pharma companies, for instance, do besides, you know, the medical schools and mm-hmm. and the medical community as uh, as such? I think for me, what I always tend to go back to is I see, you know, when I just looking at the media that's out there by pharma companies, um, and I'll focus on television media, so advertisement. Mm-hmm on on TV, the advertisements there don't really explain what migraine is. And the issue for me is these these ads are targeted towards people who have been diagnosed with migraine. They have an understanding of migraine. They know what chronic migraine is. They know what the significance of different medications are. So you're going to complete you're missing people that are going through this and may have migraine, but are not aware mm-hmm. of it because like, oh, well, that's not me. I don't have that. 
And my issue is there should be, or at least produce a PSA of some sort that's focused on increasing patient health literacy about migraine. So at least you can get them in the door to ask questions with their healthcare provider. If to me, it's just not targeted right. Migraine is a spectrum disease. So you have some folks that may have a few migraine attacks a month or a year. And you have people like me who's daily. If you're blessed enough to just be, you know, you just have it a few times a month or a few times a year and it never gets any worse for you, that's great. But for those that are unfortunately progressing up the spectrum, then you need to have different types of media out there to address people's different levels of progression because mm-hmm. not every it doesn't pertain to everyone. And again, it's that idea that migraine is like this catch-all and yeah, it's yeah, not. Yeah. That is something that I always talk about. We need to have an actual like PSA about it's just gonna yeah, be do, like what do you what do you mean with a PSA? Because that's probably in a US kind of term. Yes, but... so yeah, that's a public service announcement. So, ah, okay. Okay. So basically, yeah, it's just it's informational. It's it's not to sell anything. Sure. Um it's just to provide information and to get people access to a resource where they can go and find out how to move forward with mm-hmm. the information that they just learned or received. So I feel like migraine is missing that. It's a bit more feasible to pursue that with the pharma companies than patient advocacy organizations because they have the bigger budget, they have an actual media budget in place. You know, when they develop new drugs and have to push that out, that's already in the plan. So I'm going to bring that to you and say, hey, may not be this year, may not be next year, but really we need to be able to have some visualization and and verbal information about what migraine is to really catch somebody that is not diagnosed who may be like i don't think my headaches are what they're saying they are and they feel this way and then they hear something well that's exactly what i'm experiencing they don't talk about symptomology they don't talk about how it shows up um it's just this is this is the remedy but what are we remedying that's there's that's a gap there it's it's a whole wide range of, of yeah. different sub almost sub diseases in a way, right? Um, right. I don't know, it's not really a sub disease, but anyway, we know it's a spectrum. What you what you mentioned. So right. in Europe, of course, we don't have these kind of advertisements. You know, we we mm-hmm. we could have you know all kinds of things happening, of course, but you know we don't have advertisements on migraine or anything like that on the television. Um, so and clearly, you are you are not from Europe, of course, uh, but do you have contact with people in in Europe as well, like uh, patient advocates, or are other people uh, having a similar kind of situation as you, or do you have any feelings or, or or opinions on European situation versus the U.S. situation? I don't have constant contact with a lot of patients or groups from Europe, but the times that I have, I mean, I think the message is pretty clear universally. I have had personal conversations with people in Europe um, and other countries that live with migraine. Mm -hmm. Um, And our journeys, our medical journeys are really similar. And and I think at the bottom line is just, just people just don't understand or they don't care. That's sad to me, you know, that that is a a global That's a very sad one-liner to be honest, you know. Yeah. I don't understand or they don't care. I think, I think that is, 
that's pretty sad actually if you if you hear that yeah it is it is and you know that hurts my my soul and my heart because yeah. that tells you how pervasive the stigma is you're not taken seriously right 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 yeah. and and it takes a lot of energy to have to prove your pain prove your symptoms prove that i deserve the care i came in here for i really need it um and it forces patients to do a lot of work for for example one thing i just did was i pay like $400 which i don't have to get genetic testing done to see how i metabolize medications because that's going to help me understand why nothing has helped me really again that that leads to act, that that comes back to access because i happen to be able to travel out of state you know and go to a premier headache center in their hospital and do aggressive inpatient care where it's multi approach it's holistic so you 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 see a headache psychiatrist and you have you know mindfulness classes and you have you know nutrition i mean it's about the whole body healing sure. you yeah. know and if i didn't have access to that and have access to that headache psychiatrist i wouldn't have learned about this genetic testing and i wouldn't have gained valuable knowledge and education and information about why my journey is going the way it's going but that should be something that you this know it sh should be standard in a way it right? should be standard and it's not and and it's it's very i i i find that you know those of us who are able to access these types of treatments it's like a luxury when you hear about celebrities you know specifically female celebrities who are having children and they take out the whole like birth floor and they're the only ones there because they have that privilege and that power to do that when you have access in all walks of life you have transportation you have you know the the income to do it whatever you almost feel like a so privileged in that in that regard and i'm like this should be available for everybody yeah. you know and i still had to jump through some hoops to get there when i go through these experiences myself while i'm trying to get to a better place with my disease i'm like what can i do how can i use my struggle how can i use my privilege you know my influence to try to get eat just the basics to people True. you know to the point where eventually down the line there'll be a standard of care for headache disorders besides the fact that uh, it's important that you just share this this kind of information to all the people that are relevant to to hear this i think it's 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 just about getting the word out also to others that they also will multiply that and and uh, in the end anything in life can change uh, and there, there's always a way as long as there's enough people that are willing to put their re resources and their efforts into that right and and at a certain moment maybe governments you know medical schools and any other stakeholders uh, will actually yeah take attention and and take you know migraine more seriously i think that that will be great not only for you but also for all the others that of course are suffering from it uh, on a day by day basis so if there was one one stigma only which is still very you know of course we talked about several of them uh, at this moment uh, which which could be eradicated in 10 years from now completely which one would you choose it's not an easy <laughs> question but okay i'm going to approach it this way i think the most attainable one in 10 years Mm -hmm. would be eradicating stigma starting at like the medical school. I think we can do that. 
okay. in 10 yeah. years. And I Makes think the sense. way we can do that is by bringing in patient advocates, really forming relationships with those schools. And just, I think that's that's attainable. And I think 10 years is a doable timeline for something like that, just to increase the amount of cur- curriculum hours mm-hmm. that medical students receive around headache disorders and chronic pain period. It's just so misunderstood. Chronic pain just is a conundrum. It has many tentacles and it's attached. It attaches to a lot of other, you know, disabling illnesses. So it's, it's very, chronic pain is very complicated. It involves other disease states and other chronic conditions. And it's just about what's important is we can focus on how do we teach the ability to have cultural humility from our healthcare providers. We'll start medical school, start yeah. teaching it there. Just making people aware you will, you everybody comes into any circumstance and environment with an unconscious bias. We all do it. It's not a bad yeah. thing. We all have that. And why do we have that? Because that's basic human instinct. We need that for survival. We need to figure out, is this safe? Is this, you know, sure. am I okay yeah. here? Yeah. That's what it boils down to. But it's just about being aware that we have that being mindful of that, just like, okay, what can I do to actively listen? How can I remove myself and just really try to let the patient lead the conversation, mm-hmm. really have them feel like they can, you know, speak to me regardless of what their background is, whether they're privileged white, you know, they're, you know, tra- a transgendered, you know, a transgender woman that comes from a really trauma filled background or, you know, somebody who doesn't speak English very well, whatever it is, I need to come in with a human component, compassion, understanding, listening, because I think migraine itself has its own unconscious biases, right? Mm. So if you're you're stacking that against whatever bias that we, we bring in about somebody's gender, race, religion, sexual orientation, it makes it impossible to really hear that patient, hear their needs and help them achieve the goals that they came in there for. So I think teaching that in medical schools can help us eradicate, hopefully, that piece of the stigma where it's just completely, they come in and like, oh, you get it, you understand. You actually have a a good basic foundational education about this. And then I don't feel all that pressure as a patient to have to seek out all these specialists that are not around me. Then you have the snowball effect. If we start there and you have educated, knowledgeable clinicians in practice who are seeing patients, you know, right there on the first level, whether it's primary care, OBGYN, you know, um, pediatrics, whatever it is, they can get quality care from that physician, from that clinician. And there won't be this desperate need for people to feel like I can't get better because I can't get access to the specialist because my doctors aren't getting it and only that person will get it. And so to me, that's what you have to do. And that's the smart thing to do. Start where it's easy. Start where it makes sense. Stop trying to start at the top. Start at the bottom. Work your way there. It's a process. Learning is continual. It's a living thing. And we have to continue to do that. And what's the best way we can do that and see some real things come of it? Medical school. And we can do that. We just have to yeah. want to do it. Well, that's that's in the end what it is, isn't it? And somebody needs to stand up and say, hey, let's do this. And then the first medical school, school starts with this, then others follow and so on and so forth. And then, the, the you know, the oil stain grows basically as a result of that, which is 
ultimately what you like to achieve. And that's great. Right, right, right. And I understand it's not easy. And these <laughs> medical schools are, you know, very old institutions and stuck in their ways and they're not adaptable to change. You kind of have to go in there and lobby <laughs> the medical schools. Like, why is this important? Why do you need this? Sure. How is that going to benefit you? But what's the bigger picture? So I understand it's not that simple. So I don't want people to think that I'm just dismissing how hard things can be to get done. But I think it's just simple enough. I think it's the logical thing to do. It's just we got to start when people are fresh and excited and really yeah. want to pursue this and that they still have that innocence in it, you know, they're not jaded. And you have to be ambitious in life, right? right. If, if, if we want to get somewhere with something, you know, you just need to get started and 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 have high goals. It can take right. long, but um, if you don't do anything, nothing happens. Right. That's what mother always, my mother always said to me. So, um, and I think that is, that is a very big truth in life, I would say. Um, so, uh, Jamie, it's already, what is it, 45 minutes almost that we spoke uh, about this, this, well, not so nice topic in a way, because it's, of course, very uh, difficult for a lot of migraine patients uh, to, to, to live through this all the time. But I think it's a very important topic to talk and, uh, and, and to, uh, to get your insights on that. that is, that's really valuable. It's a true pleasure that you were here. Thank you very much for your time. Um, and I wish you really all the best and all the good luck in, in getting your Diva, Migraine Diva block, that whole journey from where it started up to where you are now and where you're going to in the future. All the good luck in, in achieving the goals that you would like to, to achieve there. And let's hope that we get uh, a little bit less medical gaslighting. That would be already something, I think, in, in practice. Yes. So. So thank you very much, uh, Jamie. Thank you. I, I, I always enjoy being able to just speak truth to my existence and my journey and um, anything I can do just to help raise awareness and just acknowledgement of people like myself that are going through this struggle, living with a disease that is completely interior and not visible to the outside world and really trying to be seen through all of that on so many different aspects of life. So I appreciate the ability to to share that with others to hopefully enlighten people, um, hopefully, you know, break the stigma one podcast interview at a time, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so I, I appreciate you giving me, you know, a platform to be able to speak sure. about this and be candid about it. And as always, your support is, is something I always, you know, cherish and I'm humbled by. So thank you. Thank you. Finally, I would also like to thank all our listeners. I hope this fifth episode was informative and inspirational. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform and stay tuned for the next episode.